All right. So we're down to our last session. So I want to invite you to take your seats, and we will have a word of prayer here, and we are going to get into our last hour and ten minutes of our four-part series. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for being with us this afternoon and this morning. We thank you for what we've learned about Michael, and we ask in a special way that you'll give us special understanding as we go into our last session here, um, especially as we focus in on the concept of what it means for Michael to stand up. So just be with me in a special way and be with each one of us as we listen that you would help us to understand. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Daniel chapter 12, this is our last chapter that describes Michael in the Bible from a chronological standpoint. Daniel chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 1 just to see where Michael shows up. Okay, Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Okay. So it says, at that time shall Michael stand up. So this is the great culmination of the controversy between Christ and Satan. Michael will stand up. That's where we are headed in our study today. And in order to understand Michael standing up, you've got to understand the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11. I mean, and I've, I've gone through some Daniel studies with, um, with people when I was younger and learning, and what would happen is you would study Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and 9, and then you would jump ahead to Daniel chapter 12, and you missed out on the information that was in Daniel 10 and 11. So we've given you the information of Daniel 10. Now we're going to look at Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12. What does it mean for Michael to stand up? Now, I'm going to be as brief as I can about this, but in order to understand the, the, the flow of history in Daniel chapter 11, and you have to understand 10 to 12 are one unit, you've got to understand the king, kingdoms. And, and so basically, I'm going to give you this diagram so that you have this um, we have in Daniel chapter 2 the head of gold which is Babylon the chest and arms of silver which is Meda Persia the thighs of brass the legs of iron the feet of iron and clay and in Daniel chapter 7 you have the lion, the bear, the leopard and the dreadful beast and then you have the little horn And then in Daniel chapter 8, you have the ram, you have the he-goat, and you have the little horn. But in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, you have the king of the north. And you have the king of the south. 
And that's basically what you have. And before you have the king of the north and the king of the south, Medo-Persia is actually mentioned, and I kind of got that offline there, but Medo-Persia is mentioned first, and then you have Greece. It's divided into four parts. And then you have the king of the north and the king of the south. And the king of the north is initially Greece, and then it becomes Rome. And basically what I've done here is, is that basically in Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 10 through 12, Rome is pagan and then papal in all of these chapters. So we're going to follow the same outline of history. But let's just remind ourselves of how important this vision is. Okay? This is the last vision in the book of Daniel. And who reveals this vision to Daniel? Christ is the one who reveals this vision to Daniel. So if Christ reveals this vision to Daniel, it's obviously going to be very important. And it's got to be very important because it culminates with Michael or Christ standing up. That's the close of probation at the end of time. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. After these sequence of kingdoms in Daniel 2, 7, 8, 10, and 12, you have Christ setting up his kingdom, which is the second coming. The stone strikes the image, fills the whole earth. That's the second coming in chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 7, after the sequence of kingdoms, you have the judgment. In Daniel chapter 8, you have the cleansing of the sanctuary. And in Daniel chapter... Um, 10 through 12, Michael stands up. That's the close of probation. And the close of probation happens just before the second coming. We don't know the exact date of the close of probation and the second coming. We just know they're going to be close together. But we do know that the judgment and the sanctuary begin in 1844. So here's what a big picture view of the study of the book of Daniel does for you. What you see is that all these kingdoms of this earth are funneling you down to 1844 with the beginning of the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary so that you can understand what happens between 1844 and the close of probation and the second coming. And it just so happens that it's the vision of Daniel 11 that fills in the details for what happens between the beginning of the judgment sanctuary and the close of probation. So does that make you want to keep studying? All right. So Daniel 2, 7, 8, 10 through 12, we see that Daniel 2 points us to the second coming. Daniel 10 through 12 points us to the close of probation. Daniel 7 and 8 point us to 1844. That tells us that from 1844 till the second coming, close of probation, second coming, that is the most important point in the history of this world. And we happen to be living during that time. Okay. So that should be exciting to us, right? You know, sometimes I hear Seventh-day Adventists are like, oh, I'm so tired of studying beasts and horns. Well, it's probably because you studied it wrong. <laughs> if you studied it right, it'd be like, wow, we're living at the part of Earth's history that all these kingdoms have come and gone. We're in the judgment hour cleansing of the sanctuary between 1844 and the close of probation and the second coming of Jesus. That's amazing. We need to get this message out to this world. Let's go out and pass out those great controversy books to the neighbors in town. They need to know this. It's like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. What are they going to say this time? I mean, as Seventh-day Adventists, we should really be excited about our faith and be sharing this. Now, let me show you something interesting. If you study this carefully, Daniel 2 shows that Christ is going to set up his kingdom. 
that in order for him to set up his kingdom, there must be a judgment so that he will see who the subjects of his kingdom will be. Who are going to be the subjects of his kingdom? Those who are have their lives cleansed from sin through the process of the cleansing of the sanctuary. When Christ finishes the judgment and completes the work of cleansing people from sin in their lives, he will stand up, probation will close, and he will come back. That's what Daniel's teaching you. If that's all you know from the book of Daniel, that's all you would need to know. Now, fortunately, there's a lot more to it than that, and it's, a, it's very interesting, so that's what we're going to do. But that's the big picture. Christ is coming to set up his kingdom. In order for him to set up his kingdom, there must be a judgment so he can have subjects in his kingdom. And Daniel 7 says that the judgment was given to the saints and they possessed the kingdom. How do they, but who's going to possess the kingdom? Only those whose lives are cleansed from sin. When their lives are cleansed from sin, Michael stands up, probation closes, and Jesus comes back. That's the message of the book of Daniel. Okay. Now, let's go back to Daniel 11. And let me see. We, so we, yeah, we're going till 5 o'clock. So we have a good hour. I like that. I usually don't have enough time to go through Daniel 11. So, okay. But I will let you out on time. Don't worry. I won't keep you over. We're going to get out on time. So, let's, let's pick it up. You have these sequence of kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan, papal Rome, and then in time events are described. So it's the same sequence in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through the history of the first 30 verses because there's a lot of um, history that a lot of us don't know a whole lot about. All I will simply mention is that the detail is much greater in these first 30 verses than what you hear in Daniel 2, 7, and 8. And the reason for this is, is this. Daniel 11 is a, an event-by-event event prophecy that goes in order. It jumps back a little bit, um, starting in verses tw verse 23, I believe. Um, it jumps back in time briefly, but other than that, it's chronological. And what God is trying to show us is this. When this, pro when this prophecy, when this vision was first given, it was all in the future. Now, most of it is in the past, and it was fulfilled exactly as it said it would take place. I'll just give you one example to show you just how accurate this prophecy is. Go to Daniel chapter 11, verses 6 and seven. So basically what happens, and before I go there, I should do this for you at least, just so that you understand how this works. And I'm going to um, erase this and give you a map to consider now, because this map is going to be very important in understanding this whole prophecy. So Judea, this is the glorious land. This is the most important territory in the book of Daniel 11, chapter 11. And when, after um, Medo-Persia passed off of the scene, Greece conquered the world. And, and I'm a terrible artist, but you get the idea. Here's Greece, and, and this is Italy. And here's, there's the beat, whatever. Um, so... Um, and this is the Mediterranean Sea here. Okay. This is not supposed to be an art class, but here's the point. Greece was divided into four parts, and there were four generals. 
Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and um, Seleucus. So Seleucus and Ptolemy eventually became the two remaining generals, because, and Seleucus was up here. He became the king of the north, and Ptolemy down here in Egypt became the king of the south. So here's what happens. King of the north is up here. King of the south is down here. And Seleucus conquered the other two generals, Lysimachus and Cassander. So you have Seleucus up here, Ptolemy down here, and guess who gets caught in the middle? And by the way, this is somewhat disproportionate, but I'm drawing it large so that I can have enough room at the end. Um, king of the North is up here. King of the South is down here. You would think that they would be satisfied with the territory that they have conquered, but they're not. The King of the North wants the whole world. The King of the South wants the whole world. And guess who gets caught in the middle? God's people, and guess what? That has a spiritual application for the end of time. God's people are going to get caught in the crossfire between the king of the north and the king of the south at the end of time, and we're going to develop that. Okay, so let me give you a verse. So after you just have these two powers, Seleucus and Ptolemy, and by the way, in the king of the north, the kings of the north were either named Seleucus or Antiochus. So they would... They had those two names to choose from, whereas down here they were always just named Ptolemy. Okay. So, the, this is from the division of the four generals of Alexander the Great after he died. And this division of four is described in Daniel 7. It's described again in Daniel 8, but we have more detail here in Daniel 11. Let me just show you. Um, verse 6 of Daniel chapter 11, it says, In the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand, nor his arm. But she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and so forth. Okay. So after all these years, there's a, hundred, a couple of hundred years of battles going on, perhaps. And finally, the king of the north and the king of the south say, you know what, let's stop fighting. I'm getting tired of this. Don't you think we should just make an agreement with each other? Why don't we make an alliance? Doesn't that sound like a good idea? And so here's what happens. The king of the, north, the, king of the south sends his daughter, Berenice. <coughs> the, the, Berenice was the daughter of Ptolemy, the king of the south. And Berenice gets shipped up here, and she marries the king of the north. There was only one problem. The king of the north was married to Laodice, who, by the way, the city Laodicea was named after Laodice. And so Laodice gets displaced as the wife of the king of the north, and now Berenice is married to Seleucus, the, the king of the north. And so now, because there's this family alignment, they are in harmony with each other. Well, after two years, the king of the north, Seleucus, he got tired of Berenice. But by then, he'd already had a child with her. And he's like, you know what? I think I'll go back to Laodice. So he puts away his second wife and goes back to his first wife. Now, do you think his first wife trusted him? Not at all. And her purpose at this point is to make sure that her son ascends to the throne that her husband now has. She doesn't trust her husband, but if she can get her son to the throne, her son's going to obviously protect his mother. 
So here's what happens. She is now back in control. Berenice has been put away, but Berenice is still up here. So Laodice has Berenice put to death and the child that Berenice had. She also has her husband poisoned, and now her son becomes the king of the north. That obviously makes Ptolemy down here mad. By now, the king of the north, or I mean the king of the south, is the brother of Berenice. The father had died. So now he comes back to make war with the king of the north, and I'm just saying that that was predicted before it even happened. Now listen, and that, that was Daniel chapter 11, verse 6. If God was right on the money about that event, do you think that the rest of the prophecy is going to be right on the money as well? Absolutely. What happens after that? You come down through time, you see... Um, for example, in verse 20, it talks about um, a raiser of taxes. That's Caesar Augustus. And then in the very next, or in two verses later, it talks about when Tiberius Caesar dies. It also talks about the prince of the covenant dying. When Tiberius Caesar was Caesar, that's when Jesus died on the cross. So basically, you have a perfect chronology of the history of the world from the time of Medo-Persia all the way down to the close of probation. I just gave you a couple of highlights to chew on so that you will see the history in the first 30 verses of the prophecy are right on the money. And what happens after Greece, then Pompey from Rome conquers um, the Seleucus division of Greece, then Rome becomes the king of the north, and then in verse um, 16, Rome then conquers the glorious land. And we know that by the time of Christ, when Christ was here on this earth, the Jews were subject to the Roman Empire because the glorious land had been conquered by Rome. But because of the, the death of Christ, you know, there was still salvation to those who follow after him. Okay. So that's basically the first 30 verses. And there's some other things. There's, if you look at verses 23 through 26, you have the whole saga of Mark Antony and Cleopatra and Caesar Augustus. If you study the history of Mark Antony's Cleopatra and Caesar Augustus, I mean, just in a nutshell, Mark Antony was with Rome and Caesar Augustus, and they were going to avenge the death of Julius Caesar. And then Mark Antony comes down to Egypt, and he runs into Cleopatra, the beautiful queen who was the sister of Ptolemy, who they were going to be co-regents, but then Cleopatra conquered her brother, and then Mark Antony follow, falls in love with Cleopatra. He divorces his wife, who was the sister of Caesar Augustus, and there's all sorts of nonsense going on here. And this final battle in literal historical terms between the king of the north and the king of the south takes place in 31 BC. It's the Battle of Actium. It took place right about down here. And um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra had more ships and more soldiers. But Caesar Augustus had a better trained army and a faster moving navy. And as soon as the battle picked up, Cleopatra got scared and turned around. And Mark Antony fled after her because he didn't want to lose her. And his soldiers got disgusted and said, we're not going to fight for this guy. And they declared for Caesar. And that was the end of the king of the south till the end of time. And at that point in history, and that gets us through verse 26, the king of the north, Rome, conquered the treasures of Egypt. He had essentially conquered the whole world. We're going to see history repeat itself as the king of the north tries to make its final conquest at the end of time. And then when we get down to about verse 30 and verse 31, this is a transition point from the king of the north being pagan Rome to papal Rome. 
And this is where I'm going to set up the final stage here for you. Okay, here we go. Now, Ellen Y actually doesn't have a lot to say about Daniel 11 directly, but she does have a very helpful quote in Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, page 394. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to read that for you. Here she says, we have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with a spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. Now notice this next sentence. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Now what happens when the prophecy of the 11th of Daniel reaches its complete fulfillment? Michael stands up and probation closes. Now when you look at, at the prophecy of Daniel 11, especially from 1798 till the close of probation, these are event prophecies, not time prophecies. So we don't have necessarily a time frame, but we know what events are going to come one after the other. And here's what she says. She continues, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Notice she doesn't say every last detail, but she says much of the history will be repeated. In the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the covenant, holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. So Ellen White shows that verse 30 is a transition point from pagan to papal Rome. And then, so she's quoting verse 30. She then goes on to quote Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 through 36. So let's read Daniel 11, verses 31 through 36. We've basically gone through the high points of the first 30 verses. Let's pick it up now in Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 through 36. And arms shall stand on its part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword, and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall, shall fall, they shall be helping with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed and the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done what history is being described in verses 31 through 36 Yeah, you have, you have the 1260 years, actually the 1260 to 1290 years of persecution of God's people. You have the persecution of papal Rome against God's people um, for many days. So let's break this down. Because Ellen White quotes this directly. What happens in verse 31? It says, arms shall stand on his part. So in other words, 
military power comes to the assistance of the king of the north. Now, if, the, if we were talking about pagan Rome, that wouldn't be of any special significance. But the fact that we're talking about a transition here, how do we know it's a transition? Because it says, he shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. What's the abomination of desolation? An abomination of desolation is the uniting of that which is sacred with, with, with that which is, is, is profane. And by uniting that which is holy with which that which is not holy, it brings destruction. And what happens is when you unite church and state, that is an unholy union. And when that is united together, persecution, desolation follow. So here we're clearly speaking of a spiritual power. This is, this is papal Rome, and military power assists it. And then it says they shall take away the daily. And, um, and then it says they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Okay. So... Here's the thing. And then after that, after you have military power standing on behalf of, of papal Rome, the daily's taken away, abomination of desolation. After that, what happens? Persecution of the saints. Okay. This is how the papacy set itself up. Now, how did military power stand to assist um, papal Rome? Yeah, when you come down through history at this point in Daniel chapter 11, and this is pretty thick in history, but it helps us to get to where we're going. This is 508 and 538 in, um, in the flow of history. 508, Clovis, the king of the Franks, he gave his military power to assist the papacy in uprooting the barbaric tribes from Europe. That allowed the papacy to establish itself as the supreme power in Europe when there was a contention over who would replace pagan Rome as the preeminent power. And then in 538, that was further established when Justinian gave the decree that gave political power to the bishop of Rome. So now not only did you have um, Clovis offering military power, now the bishop of Rome has political power to tell the military to do what he says to do. So even though the papacy itself didn't raise up an army, they now gained control over the military power of that time because the Bishop of Rome could tell the military what to do. So arms stand on the part, and then the daily is taken away. I'm not going to get into that whole issue, but I'll just tell you that um, when the daily was taken away, this was 508, that was when the last pagan nations in Europe were removed. So I believe the the daily is paganism. If you see it the other way, it's okay. Ellen White says it's not a salvational issue and to not get into a big fight over it. So just, it's okay. Moving on. Abomination of desolation. This is the union of church and state, which we've talked about. And with the military power and with the union of church and state, the church drives the state to persecute God's saints. And we, talk, we talked about that in Revelation 12. The church flees into the wilderness. The woman flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days. And here in Daniel 11, we see exactly what happens. The people of God were strong. They did exploits. Yet, those who understood among the people, they fell by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil for many days. These were the four methods of persecution that the papacy gave to the saints. The sword, we'll just, you know, We'll kill you with a sword. By the flame, we'll burn you at the stake. 
We'll put you in prison and spoil. Do you know what spoil is? Here's what it is. Hey, and this is the papacy speaking. We have some heretics we need to have taken care of. If you go out and kill those heretics, we'll give you their property too. Flame, or the sword, the flame, captivity, and by spoil, many days. Does that sound like God was running this power or Satan? Obviously Satan's running this power. They were persecuting the saints in the name of God. And, and then you see that this would last for many days. And these many days, that is equal to the 1260 that you see earlier in Daniel chapter 7. And then in verse 34, it says, Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. I believe that that's referring to the Reformation that then came along in the 13, 14, 1500s. But then many shall cleave to them with flattery, so the Protestant Reformation didn't go as far as it could have gone. And then verse 35, And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge them and make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. So when this persecution ends after many days, after the 1260 years, what does that signify the beginning of? The time of the end. So if you want to understand the beginning of the time of the end being 1798, understanding Daniel 11 is very helpful to get to that because the persecution lasts for many days and when the persecution ends, the time of the end begins. Okay. And then basically 36 through 39 talks more about how the papacy establish itself. Verse 36, it says, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. Remember in Daniel 7, 25, the little horn speaks great words against the most high. So here we're clearly seeing the same power. The king of the north here is papal Rome, and he rules for many days. He persecutes the saints. Now here's the interesting thing. Let's go back to this quote that I read. She says, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Okay? Sometimes we think, okay, there's going to be some kind of a time of trouble, and then Jesus will come and whatever. Realize when this time of trouble comes, there's going to be scenes similar to, to what's described in Daniel 11. And then she goes on. She says, after she quotes verses 31 to 36 of Daniel 11, she says this, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So what are the scenes similar? Flame, captivity, spoil, and the sword. And it will, now it's not going to last for 1260 years, thankfully. And again, sometimes people, I've heard some people try to line everything up, arm standing on the part of the daily taking away abomination of desolation and so forth. She's saying scenes similar. Don't make it so perfectly exact that it's a, you know, some kind of complicated chart that has to be so precise. She's just saying scenes similar. Here's what we know. What's going to be similar? There's going to be persecution of the saints. Church and state are going to unite. There's going to be an abomination of desolation that will cause persecution of the saints, and they're going to use methods of persecution such as the sword, the flame, and prison. And they'll probably spoil your property too. So if you have all this, the goods that the world has to offer now, they're going to spoil it one of these days if you're on the Lord's side. So don't put your, your money in this earth. Okay. So this gives us a road map. And um, when you look at the road map for what then happens 
in the rest of Daniel chapter 11, what, what becomes apparent to me then, I'm going to get some of this out of here, um, is that history is going to repeat itself because she says much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Then she quotes verses 31 through 36 that describes these elements here. And then she says scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. That's Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, 394. 13MR394. Okay, so here's what I see. That's If history is going to repeat itself in this prophecy, here's what we're going to see. Military power assisting the papacy. An abomination of desolation will be made, the union of church and state, and there will be persecution of the saints. And I'm going to show you that these three key elements are in the next section of Daniel 11. So do you want to see that section? Okay. Of course, you may not want the persecution that comes with it, right? But it's there. And remember, Michael is on our side. Michael's on our side. Okay. Continuing. Let's pick it up now in verse 40. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Okay. So, at the time of the end. When is the time of the end? Okay, time of the end. What happens at the beginning of verse 40? Yeah, it says the king of the south shall push out, or some versions say attack, but the Hebrew word for push or attack is the Hebrew word nagak, which means to gore. Now, if you gore an animal, you are giving it a deadly wound. Right? If a bull runs his horn into you. He's trying to gore you to kill you. So here, at the time of the end, the king of the south, which was Egypt, all the way through the first 30 verses, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we haven't heard about the king of the south since 31 BC, and then all of a sudden, in 1798, the king of the south comes and pushes at the king of the north. We haven't had a battle between these two powers for a long time. And the king of the north had seemingly conquered the, the king of the south. And all of a sudden, the king of the south comes and gives a deadly wound to the king of the north. What happened in 1798? So did the king of Egypt come and attack Syria or whatever? No, that's not what it's talking about. 1798, we have shifted here. This is speaking in spiritual terms. Yes, it's a geographical entity, but it's a spiritual entity. The, who was the power that attacked the papacy in 1798? It was France. Now, how does France fit the specifications of Egypt? Okay. Yeah, so, so the um, Pharaoh said, who is Jehovah that I should obey him? That's atheism. Okay, so 
again, in the history, Napoleon sends his general Berthier, and he takes Pope Pius VI captive. And at that point, the papacy no longer has control over the state power. Yes, the Vatican still existed physically speaking, but they had lost control over the state. Now, some people say that the deadly wound was healed in 1929. That may have been the beginning. At that point, Mussolini, the, the president of Italy or whatever, gave their territory back to them as their own state and whatever, but they still have not had worldwide dominion over the state powers since 1798. That will only happen when nations of the world will legislate laws re with regard to worship that are in harmony with what the papacy wants. And until that time, the wound is being healed, but it has not been healed. When we start to see Sunday legislation, that's when the deadly wound is healed. So 1798, the deadly wound is given by Egypt, not Egypt, spiritual Egypt, and here's why I say that. We talked about the French Revolution this morning in our very first presentation. And the French Revolution happened at the end of the 1260 years, right at the very end, from 1793 to 1797, as far as what fulfilled prophecy. And how is France described in Revelation chapter 11 from a spiritual standpoint? Sodom and Egypt. So that makes perfect sense. So the power that is spiritually Egypt, it's spiritual Egypt, France, gives the deadly wound to the papacy, which is now the spiritual king of the north. So now what we're going then to talk about, that would mean then that when we talk about the glorious land and the glorious holy mountain later on, we're not going to be talking about literal Israel. We're going to be talking about spiritual entities. Does that make sense? Okay. So this deadly wound takes place in 1798. So here's the interesting thing. You go through all this history down from 539 B.C. and a little bit, because Darius, the, in Daniel 11, verse 1, Darius the Medes stood. That's 539 when the Medes and Persians take over. You come all the way from 539 B.C., the beginning of this prophecy, and now when you, when you look at the scope of history, we've gone from 539 to 1798. That's all. We've gone way down in the scope of time in this prophecy. So we're in verse 40, and then you get to verse 41, he enters into the glorious land, and you keep coming down, and then finally, 42, 43, 44, 45, Daniel 12, verse 1, Michael stands up, and you have the close of probation. So here's what we're going to be spending the rest of our time on. We are going to be looking at the events that take place between 1798 and the close of probation when Michael stands up. And here's what we know. There are no more time prophecies after 1844. So what we are going to be describing from 1798 to the close of probation all the way through here are event prophecies. So what's going to happen, according to Daniel 11, between 1798 and, 1840, and the close of probation? Do you want to know? Let's keep studying. Okay, this is very fascinating. So... At the very first part, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him. But notice what happens. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So what happens sometime after 1798? The king of the north makes a comeback 
against the king of the south. Now, the king of the south is spiritually described as Sodom and Egypt, Sodom for its licentiousness, Egypt for its atheism, France and the French Revolution combined both, licentiousness and atheism. This beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit is a beast that represents a power, a godless power, atheism and licentiousness that will be a factor till the very end of time. Now, when the king of the north makes a comeback against the king of the south, it says he comes against him with what? Chariots, horsemen, and many ships. Okay. What are chariots and horsemen? That's an army. Now, here's the thing. Remember? that much of the history is going to, that has taken place is going to repeat itself, guess what? In the last half of Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, we start to see history repeating itself. Because when you get to Daniel 11, verses 30 and 31, this is how the papacy rose to power. They gained control over the military, they united church and state, and then they persecuted the saints. So what's going to happen at the end of time? The papacy needs to gain control again over military power so that they can again unite church and state so that they can again persecute the saints who are standing in the way of them accomplishing their objectives. And in the last half of verse 40, the king of the north begins to accomplish its objectives because this king of the south has prevented the king of the north from gaining control over the world again. The king of the north is a professed religious power and the king of the north, the papacy, has had a hard time ever since the deadly wound because Europe was communist, Europe was atheist. They couldn't tell the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe how to worship. They couldn't enact laws the way they wanted to because those nations would just laugh at them. They're like, well, we don't even believe in God. We don't have any churches. You don't have anything to do. We won't have anything to do with your church or any other church. And so the king of the north needed to conquer the area closest to it that was preventing it from regaining world power. So what it did was it says we need to gain military power again. We need to gain power so that we can conquer the nations that are preventing us from doing so. And by the way, France, Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, and from there that's where the Russian Revolution took off. And so basically Russia carried on the spirit of the French Revolution and atheism and all of that. And so you had the Cold War, which some of you now are becoming too young to remember, which is slightly discouraging to me. But um, anyway, um, so do any of you remember from history, or can any of you think of a point in history where the papacy used the assistance of military power to strike a blow against atheistic nations of this world? It's going to be after 1798. What were you saying? Yeah, absolutely. The 1980s with Ronald Reagan and the Pope. In um, Time Magazine, I think it's in February 24, 1992, there's this article written by Carl Bernstein called The Holy Alliance. It describes how Pope John Paul II 
and Ronald, President Ronald Reagan in 1982, I believe it was June 7, had their first secret meeting. And this was the meeting. This is what they talked about in their meeting. They talked about how the money of the papacy in combination with the military power of the United States could be used to bring down communist Eastern Europe. And you know what? They were successful. 1987, Ronald Reagan shows up to the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, and he stands up in front of that gate, and he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And you know what? A year and a half later, that had happened. And we were seeing prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes, because now a military power, the military superpower of the United States, was lending a hand to the papacy for the papacy to accomplish its objectives of destroying the enemies that are keeping it from conquering the world. And so by 1991, all of the Eastern European nations that were communist had fallen. So when you look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, where he comes like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. When it says he shall enter into the countries, mind you, when it says enter into the countries, that is for the purpose of conquest. It's not just to take a trip through the, the, the country to enjoy the scenery. No, to enter into, that means the papacy is coming for the purpose of conquest. And so that's what happens. And the many ships, um, basically, if you go to Revelation 18, ships are part of what represents economic power. And the papacy is probably the richest organization in the world today. Okay, well, we better keep going here. Now, verse 41. This is where things get very, very interesting. After those events of the late 1980s and early 1990s, which are now starting to fade into in people's memory, it's 20, 20 something years ago, What's the very next thing that happens? He shall enter also into the glorious land. So notice, just as the king of the north in the past, yeah, just as the king of the north in the past would pass through the glorious land on his way to conquer the world, sometime after 1798, the king of the north is going to enter into the glorious land again, and it's going to be for the purpose of conquest. Now, what was the glorious land symbolic or representative of in Daniel 11:16? That's where God's people were. This was Judea. This is where God's people dwelt. And so I believe this represents the, the worldwide territory of God's people. And I'm going to show you specifically what I believe this is as we move along here. So the king of the north is going to try to conquer God's people. And then, but then it says, many shall escape out of his hand, or these shall escape out of his hand. Or let me, sorry, let me jump back. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. Here the word countries is applied. It should not be there. It just says, many shall be overthrown. So in other words, many of God's people are going to be conquered by the king of the north. And again, great controversy, page 608. She says, as the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message will abandon God's ranks and join the ranks of the opposition. They have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth. So here's the thing. If your pastor's telling you that sanctification isn't part of salvation and you follow that line of thinking, you're getting prepared to be overthrown by the king of the north. If you aren't allowing God to sanctify you every day, that's going to allow you to, to receive the mark of the beast at the end of time. Now, let's keep going. So let me just help you understand what the glorious land is and the glorious holy mountain. Because when you come to the end of Daniel 11, it talks about how the king of the north shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Now, 
a glorious holy mountain. Let me show, to show you what this is. Go to Psalms chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to run pretty quicker, so you might want to write these verses down and come back to this and study this more later. Psalms 48, verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, and the mountain of his holiness. So here's the holy mountain. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion, which, by the way, and it says on, on the sides of the north, Mount Zion was on the north side and still is, literally speaking, of Jerusalem. So this holy mountain Notice in Psalms 48, it's described as the holy mountain, but in Daniel 11, it's the glorious holy mountain. This is the north side of Jerusalem. So here's what I can tell you. And by the way, when you go to Daniel 9, and we, we mentioned this briefly, I mean, we were looking at Daniel 9 briefly, but in Daniel chapter 9, verse 16, Daniel refers to the city of Jerusalem as God's holy mountain. So Mount Zion and Jerusalem, which Mount Zion is on the north side of Jerusalem, these are described as the holy mountain. Now, let me give you one other verse, Joel 2.32. And this, to me, is where things are very fascinating. Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom, whom the Lord shall call. Now let me tell you this. This is a last day prophecy. Because when you just jump back four verses earlier, verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I shall pour out my flesh, spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And then you see the dark day in verse 31, the sun turning dark, the moon turns into blood, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. And then we see if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be delivered. And it just so happens that in Daniel chapter 12, when Michael stands up, it says, thy people shall be delivered. So here's the point. There's, this is clearly a last day prophecy. And what this prophecy is saying is that Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the remnant, that is where deliverance will take place. What we've seen, though, is that Mount Zion and Jerusalem are the holy mountain which means the remnant is part of this. And let me show you something very interesting. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And let's look in verses 25, 26, and 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, what? A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So why is the word glorious added to holy mountain? Because the holy mountain describes Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and the remnant. The glorious holy mountain describes God's last day church that is holy, without spot, without blemish, that has been sanctified and cleansed. Do you see that? This is God's last day church that goes through the cleansing of the sanctuary. So the glorious holy mountain represents a smaller section of the glorious land. 
Now that's pretty obvious. Jerusalem is one city in the nation of Judah, but it's not the whole nation. So if you're in Jerusalem, you're in Judah. But if you're outside of Jerusalem and Jerudah, I mean, if you're outside of Judah, you're not in Jerusalem. So here's what happens. The king of the north comes into the glorious land for the purpose of conquering them. But many are overthrown. However, when you come to the very end of the chapter, it's, you see that there's still a glorious holy mountain that's left. This is Mount Zion. This is Jerusalem. This is the remnant. This is the glorious church that is holy without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. This is the group of people, God's last day saints, who survived the final onslaught of Satan. Unfortunately, most Seventh-day Adventists are going to be overthrown by the final crisis. So here's what I see with the glorious land and the glorious holy mountain. The glorious land that the King of the North is going to enter into represents the Seventh-day Adventist church, a worldwide church in a pre-shaken condition. But when the Sunday law comes, the chaff is going to be shaken out. And many Seventh-day Adventists are going to be overthrown. But those who are in the glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the remnant, they will stand. And so here's the thing. So if you keep going down through Daniel 11, and um, we're going to have to wrap this up quickly. But as you keep going down through Daniel 11, notice this. He enters into the glorious land. So you know what? This is what I believe. So you have the conquering of Eastern Europe back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Do you know what the next event prophecy is going to happen in Daniel 11? King of the North enters into the glorious land. And you know what that is? That is the beginning stages of Sunday legislation. We need to wake up, people. I mean, Jesus is trying to come, and the papacy wants to enter into the worldwide territory of God's church for the purpose of conquering. And, he, and the papacy thinks, and through the power of Satan, that it will overthrow the entire church. Satan is saying, God, I am going to show to you, I'm coming after your church in the last days, and I will overthrow it when I enter into it. And God is saying, no, you won't. I'm going to have my glorious holy mountain. So he enters into the glorious land. Many countries will be overthrown. And so there's going to be this, there's these stages of Sunday legislation. First it will be you can't work. And then it's like, not only can you not work, but you need to come to church on Sunday. You can go to church on Sabbath as well, but you need to come to church on Sunday. And then it's like, you can't buy or sell. And finally, we're going to put you to death. So there's at least four stages to Sunday legislation. And listen, if we're compromising on little things now, like, oh, I'll just go to work on Sabbath here and there. It won't bother too much. Oh, you're going to fall like nothing when the final crisis comes because they're going to be telling you you can't eat, buy food. And you're like, well, I have to feed my family. Surely God will understand. He's a loving, gracious, gracious God. And if you've allowed the grace of God to be turned into lasciviousness like we talked about in the book of Jude, you're going to fall like nothing for that. Okay. Continuing, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but Edom was, that was the tribe of Esau. Moab and Ammon were the, um, the, the sons of Lot and his daughters. And they were related to God's people. I see these as people who profess or know about God, but they're not in God's remnant church. They're in Babylon and they come out and they escape out of the hand of the papacy. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Egypt is the king of the south. I believe this represents the final atheistic nations that remain out there, China, 
Cuba, Laos, a few others. And when the final crisis hits, there will be no atheists in foxholes. When they see the supernatural powers of God here on this earth, they're, they're going to join the side of the papacy. Verse 43, he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. That is when I believe no man will be able to buy or sell. And then it says the Libyans and the Ethiopians will be at a step. So Libya is over here, Ethiopia is over here. Basically speaking, in the Hebrew mind, if you have a power that has conquered all of this territory up here, it's come through the glorious land, it's conquered Egypt, Libya and Ethiopia is at its steps, you have conquered the whole world. And at this point, the papacy and Satan, they're like, see, we knew we could do it. We knew that God's people would be overthrown by the Sunday law. We knew that they wouldn't want to give up their food and their, their paycheck and their protection for their family. We knew we could overcome them. This has been easy. We've conquered the whole world. See, God, what are you doing? But wait, it's not over. Verse 44, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So here's what happens. He gets all the way down here, but then out of the east and out of the north, coming right from Jerusalem, the glorious holy mountain, is tidings from the east that lighten the earth with the glory of God. An angel comes down from heaven having great power. This is Revelation 18.1. And the earth is lightened with his glory. And notice what the message says in verse 2. And he cries mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. Listen, when we give the final message that identifies the king of the north who thinks he's conquered the whole world as the habitation of devils, that he's the hold of every foul spirit in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird, they are going to be as angry as anybody can be. They are saying, we are working on, on the behalf of God. Look at the miracles that God is doing on our behalf. And you're saying we're under the control of Satan, and they are going to go forth with great fury to utterly destroy and make away many. And that connects right with Revelation 12, 17, which was in our first pre presentation. The dragon was wroth with the woman, who is this glorious church, who, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. This is the remnant, which keep the commandments of God which is a demonstration of his character and of his righteousness, and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Listen, do you want to know who Michael's going to stand up for in the last days? Michael is going to stand up for a remnant of people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Listen, I get worried for my brothers and sisters in the church when they start throwing out the spirit of prophecy. They're playing right into Satan's hands. That is the very defense that God has given to us to protect us from the attacks of Satan at the end of time. I get worried for my brothers and sisters when I hear them using Babylonian evangelical arguments saying, I don't really need to keep the law of God. I can't keep it anyway. When Jesus has said, you can overcome as I overcame. And so Satan is already attacking the remnant. And those who don't believe in the commandments of God or the spirit of prophecy, they are going to be the many who are overthrown when the king of the north enters in. But those who hold true to the righteousness of Christ, to the commandments of God, to the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, they will be in position to give the loud cry message to the world. And Satan, through the papacy, will be enraged. He will go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And the verse 45, it says, he shall 
plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So here's what happens. He plants the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Now, by the way, this is a minor point. In the King James, it says in the glorious holy mountain, but in the original language, it's and. So it's not, this tabernacle of the palace is not planted in the remnant church. It's planted outside of the remnant church, outside of the faithful, between the sea, which represented, literally was the Mediterranean Sea, but this is representing people, nations, tongues. This is the whole world. So he plants the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Here's what happens. Tabernacle, church. Palace, that's the place where the king resides. Union of church and state. This is the final abomination of desolation. And what it does, this final abomination of desolation, it's done in the context of going to destroy and to utterly make away the remnant. In other words, this is the death decree. You worship on Sunday or you are going to be put to death. You know, sometimes people say, oh, how can you get Sunday law and death decree from the Bible? It's right here. And what happens is the entire world, the whole world who wandered after the beast in Revelation 13, you have a dividing line between the rest of the world and the small little remnant. And they're going to be saying to us, what, you think all of us are wrong and your little group is right? But listen, we need to be willing to learn how to stand true to God now, even if we're the only one. Because the only thing that determines what is right and wrong is what the Word of God says. Now notice this. When he makes this death decree, it says he shall come to his end and none shall help him. This will be the end of the King of the North. Now this now helps us to understand what it means for Michael to stand up. Because at this point in time, humanly speaking, we're the small little remnant in the sea of people. The whole world is going to come against us like a flood and just wipe us off the map. And it seems from a human standpoint that there is nothing that we can do at that point. And it's at that time that Michael stands up. And we've seen in, Daniel, or in Revelation chapter 12, Michael prevails against the dragon. In Jude, Michael prevails against Satan over the body of Moses. Daniel chapter 10, Michael prevails against Satan over the mind of the king of Persia. And in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, when the entire great controversy is at stake, when the whole world is coming against the remnant to destroy them, to put them off the map, at that time shall Michael stand up. He shall stand up for the children of thy people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Which that's, that means that there was a process of investigation the books were investigated, there was an investigative judgment, and the names that were found written in the book, those who keep the commandments of God, Michael stands up for them, and I want to be among that number. Now let me show you something very fascinating here. When Michael stands up, he is standing up for his remnant church. Up until that time, obviously, he has been seated and according to scripture, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And there are several places in scripture that describe the work of Christ 
being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We know in Daniel chapter 7, he's doing the work of judgment. But in Hebrews chapter 8, we see now the things, this is verse 1, now the things which we have spoken, we have such an high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So Christ is our high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, what's he doing seated at the right hand of the throne of God as our high priest? Verses 5 and 6 says he's the mediator of a better covenant. And what is he going to do as the mediator of a better covenant? Verses 10 through 13 of Hebrews 8 says that he is going to write his law into our hearts and minds. That goes along with what Ellen White says, the seal of God is a settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually so that you cannot be moved. You know it in your head and you experience it in your heart. You live it out in your life. So Christ seated, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's he doing? While he is seated, number one, he is working to write his law into our hearts and minds. And look, if he writes his law into our hearts and minds, that would mean he has a commandment keeping people, right? Okay, so that's the first thing that we see. So what Christ is trying to accomplish while he is seated is to have commandment keepers. Number two, what's he doing? Let's go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 describes Jesus in another way at the right hand of the throne of God. Verses 1 and 2, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto who? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down where? at the right hand of the throne of God. So first of all, we see he's the high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Secondly, we see he's the author and finisher of our faith seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what is he trying to get us to do while he is the author and the finisher of our faith? He is encouraging for us to run the race that he ran, right? Well, how, do, how are we supposed to run this race? Paul says, let us run with what? patience, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, or he had patience, despising the shame, and he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now Jesus says, and we talked about this in our first presentation, how did Jesus get to the right hand of the throne of God? By overcoming, and he says, overcome as I overcome, and or, as I overcame, and you'll get to the same place. How do we overcome? by the blood of the lamb and first john 5 forces this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith so if we are to overcome as jesus overcame what kind of faith do we need faith of jesus. the faith of jesus okay that's one bible verse right revelation 14 12 here is the patience of the saints here are they that keep the commandments of god and the faith of jesus you realize that that group is the 144,000. this glorious holy mountain symbolizes the 144,000 and here's what is happening in the great controversy and if you don't get anything else from this entire four-part series this is the part I want you to get when Michael stands up he has finished the work he has been doing at the right hand of the throne of God while he has been seated what is that work that he has been trying to accomplish to get a group of people to keep the commandments of God have the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus in other words he is working to develop the 144,000 
when Michael develops the 144,000, he will stand up. He allows the king of the north to come through, and the king of the north thinks that it has nearly conquered the whole world, and they're about to celebrate and say, we've done it, we did it, we've conquered the world, and Christ has simply allowed the king of the north to get that far because he now has his 144,000 who will keep the commandments of God and be a demonstration of the character of God to the universe so that when Michael stands up, he is looking at Satan and he is looking at the universe and he is saying, this controversy is over once and for all. I have a group of people who have been faithful against all odds, against all controversy, whatever it took, no matter what the cost, no matter what the price, Michael is saying, I have my 144,000 who have the patience of the saints. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, and they are going to go through Jacob's time of trouble, and Satan, you can try to bring the whole world against them, but you're not going to be able to do anything because I am standing on their behalf, and Michael is Christ who is God, and all the forces and hosts of hell cannot do anything against God's people who have Michael standing up for them. And so what Daniel 11 is teaching us is that we're getting close to the point where the king of the north is going to enact a Sunday law. They will enter into the territory of God's people. Most of them will be overthrown, but a remnant, the 144,000, will remain. And you know, it's interesting. The glorious holy mountain is described as Mount Zion here on this earth. But do you remember in Revelation 14 where the 144,000 stand with Christ in heaven? They stand with the lamb on Mount Zion. And they follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you know why they do that? Because they've learned to follow him wherever he goes here. I want to be like that, amen? I want to learn to follow Jesus wherever he takes me now. No matter the price, no matter the cost, no matter what it is, a day is coming when Michael is going to stand up for his saints. And I want to be among that number. If you want to be part of that number, I would invite you to stand with me as we have a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you so much that we have a great high priest, we have an author and finisher of our faith who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God even now, working as hard as he can to develop a group of people that he can stand up for someday soon. And Lord, I pray that each one of us here would resolve in our hearts and minds to say, Lord, I'm going to lay aside the weight and the sin in my life that has so easily been besetting me, and I'm going to run this race with patience that has been set before me so that I can follow Jesus wherever he takes me here on this earth and throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. We pray that we will be among that number that Michael will stand up for, and although we know the conflict is going to be hard, We know that with Michael on our side, we will be victorious. So go with us now the rest of this weekend. Bless the speakers who will be speaking the rest of this weekend. And may each one of of us here leave this meeting in a closer walk with you. We thank you and we praise you for all that you're doing for us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.